Alrighty, everybody. Howdy and hello, and welcome back to Cibolo Creek Conversations. I'm here with Mr. Paul Wilson. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Good. Do, uh, good. And uh, we are joined by a three-time World Series champion, author, public speaker, humanitarian, outdoorsman, owner of Free Roam Brewing Company in Bernie, Texas, and father, Mr. Jeremy Afeld. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We're super excited about it. You're actually uh, our second guest, so... Oh, well, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, very excited. Try not to ruin it out the gate for you guys. <laughs> uh, We've probably done that to ourselves. That's quite a resume you got there of a wide variety of experiences. Yeah. Yeah, I've kind of uh, made it pretty interesting. I've, uh, man, I, I've kind of been all over the map, and people try to say, well, what do you actually do? And I'm like, um, <laughs> I actually just wander around and check out new cool stuff and start things hey, and kind of just go with the flow and... Um, God's taken me on an interesting journey on how the brewery even got started, and now, yeah. and, uh, but no, it's uh, it's been great. So yeah, I, I definitely am not probably the status quo when it comes to a retired athlete, but that's fine. Well, I I'm sort of a similar uh, uh, personality. Lots of things fascinate me, and so I get yeah. interested in them, and I want to explore them and try them out. And so I got kind of all these different things that I'm into from sculpting to backpacking to triathlon. Yeah. And, and I don't know, I guess people are just wired differently. And like, if you can make a living and a life out of pursuing lots of different, uh, interest and more power to you. I yeah. Think that's that's awesome. kind of the concept. Yeah. For me anyhow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm kind of that way with ideas, but don't really get too far with uh, shooting at a whole bunch of different ideas at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, you you are kind of a ideas guy, aren't you? Yeah, probably need to be a little bit more hands on. But uh, then you find right. a balance. There's a place for everything. Nah, visionaries are good. I think that's where um, that's kind of what they've said about me. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily know how. I'm not very creative. I just have the idea, yeah. but I don't know how to create it. Like. Like even, I mean, something so simple as like logo design, like when I did my brewery logo design, like I knew what I wanted and I saw it and I'm like, well, you got to integrate the making of a beer with a buffalo (laughs) and you're sitting there thinking, well, and then I was like, well, why don't we turn the, I was like, well, I just, I've seen a lot of different things and and I saw a beer, a guy with a beard, uh, a logo with a beard and the beard was made out of hop leaves. And I'm like, why don't we just make a hop leaf buffalo and then trying to get the artist to like do it. And he's like, the first time I'm like, what? (laughs) That's not at all the concept, but you have to get them and I'm not creative. So I just have the, I can see it, but I can't necessarily always but then once you talk to them enough and they created it, it was like, yeah, that's exactly it. You know, like Mm -hmm. I don't have, even in the, in the brewery itself, I want a brewery for a, a reason. I don't know how to make beer. I really don't. I'm learning from my brewery. I don't know how to run a brewery. I'm learning that from my GM who's done it for 20 years. I don't. I just know what the concept of the brewery yeah. is and what I want to do with it. Yeah. But I don't really know how to implement all that. You know. So yeah. uh, visionaries are not bad. You, it's not no. a bad thing for you to be ideas guy. There's that's why delegation's a, a, a big deal. People yeah. have skills. You know. Well, that was helpful because I've always recognized i mean the buffalo part of your your logo is very obvious yeah. i was always wondering what what are the other little features there so those are yeah. hop leaves yeah they're all hop leaves okay. in the green one i mean depending where you're from everybody thinks they're 
weed leaves, but you know, it's not obviously. I was like, ah, you Californians automatically go there, but no, it's you explain it's a hop leaf. And if you look at a hop, if you actually look at a, a hop, it's literally that it actually yeah. has that, that shape, you know, and so you, you basically just put horns on it and yeah, make it a buffalo, you and know, you got so, a buffalo. yeah, so it's been a great logo design, honestly. It's been a uh, uh, the merch, our sales and merch is, are, are pretty high, but it really, it's just a great conversation. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. a, and we've been at these brewery conferences and people will have other brewing companies come and take pictures of our sweatshirt. And they're like, can we, can we take a picture back? So this, this, this logo is awesome. And I was looking at my, my, uh, uh, my GM and my brewer, are both uh, business partners too. They have, they have, uh, they have ownership and I'm like, Hey, so we might, we got that trademarked, right? Like we're, we're we we are on that, correct? Because too many people taking pictures of the logo, so I'm needing. And it, thank God we did it. Yeah. But uh, it's just creative, and it creates conversation, and that's the concept for me with community. It's yeah. just conversation. So. Yeah, um, I remember. I don't know if we were having lunch together or if we were chatting in my office one time, and you were sharing a little bit about your interest in starting a brewery, and I remember you telling me that the thing for you was. What could I do to help create community? What could I do to help connect people and get conversations started? And I, I think it's really cool to watch, you know, as a resident of this community, watching the brewery take shape and yeah. the whole building and complex becoming, you know, reality. And then watching from a distance the community around the brewery starting to take shape. You're doing yeah. the concert things now. And yeah. I just really think that's cool to watch what was in your head yep. starting to come to pass. Yeah, no, it, it has been great. And the whole concept, I mean, I've always been a kid, you know, I guess I should say as a kid and as an adult, I, I just have always been fascinated with community. I think that, you know, been a military brat um, growing up, I bounced around so much you had to create it quickly because I didn't know, yeah. you know, my dad would get shipped off. Right. So it's, I had my, I had to develop my little community very, very fast. And then going mm. to different churches, different denominations, how they did community. And even though like, you know, like some of that old school theological community style church, uh, Kind of, I went to a church in Medical Lake uh, where I grew up, and, it, and literally, I close my eyes and I see Footloose. You know, like <laughs> that's literally the look of the church because it's a little tiny town. It's like five thousand people or yeah. something. Right, and it's a old church with a big steeple and an annex, and like it's just like you just see it as that's I see Footloose mm -hmm. in that, and and but I I one thing I took one of the awesome things I took from that were potlucks. Uh, I just remember that as a yeah, kid. I love potluck. Like oh, people bring talks up, about potlucks, yeah, man. They bring food and you just like you dish up and everybody's yep. like hanging out. And I was like, you know what? Of all the things that I, not that I disliked about it, just I just didn't connect with. It wasn't my that style of church isn't my personality, but the potluck thing is yep. like I just enjoy. Oh man, communion. You know, yep. and community, and I just since I was a kid, I just I loved it. I, I love doing those things, yep. you know, and, yep. and uh, so it was fun for me. And I just this is what it's kind of evolved in. The brewery is my style of a potluck. Of I we have food trucks. It's my style of everybody bringing their own food. Yeah, I'll have two food trucks at a time in the back. 
I got people. I I literally sit back there uh, on our music nights, and I will sit off to the side. We have outdoor taps, and we just have a bunch of chairs that that we put out for by over there. And there's a bunch of picnic tables, and these these outdoor chairs are these plastic chairs that you open it up, and there's like a Yeti size cup holder, a, a a key chain holder and a phone holder all in the same thing. Right. I'll take all my stuff out, put it in there. I lit, light a cigar, grab a beer, and I literally watch people uh, just enjoying conversation, music, talking, laughing. And I think to myself at times, I'm like, God, this is like, I just see this as like, this is it for me. Like this brings me peace to see people just, enjoying life and some of them are probably smiling and some of them i've seen they're having deep conversations because they're probably going through some sort of storm and they're just trying to process it and then i'll see some couples over there and they're not talking at all and they're just staring at the music and they're just taking a deep breath and they're just being you know and so for me i just i'm very thankful i I just i just i'll sometimes sit there and be like god this this is it for me like this People come up to me while I'm sitting there. We talk or I'll walk around, just check in on people from time to time. I, you know, I, like I said, I, I just act like I work there. I just really just roam around and, you know, talk <laughs> to everybody. But I just enjoy hearing conversation and stories yeah, and yeah. just seeing where they're at in life, you know. You'd probably be surprised that that's a bit more of a reflection of Jesus's design for the church mm. than a lot of churches. Mm, I would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree with that. So, um, this is Sybil Creek Conversations, and Wyatt and I do this uh, just about once a week. We get together, and we find a topic, and we just come in and start exploring it in a discussion, and it's not really a presentation, so uh, we're looking forward to having this conversation with you today, and I, I thought maybe a, a great way to start is tell us a little bit about you, where you grew up, how you ended up in the baseball, and yeah. some of the formative experiences of your life. Yeah, uh, like we were saying earlier, my journey's interesting. I'm kind of a, I think that the reason why I kind of do a bunch of things is because that's kind of how my life, I was thrown into that life. You know, my dad was in the Air Force. Uh, he was a bombardier for B-52s in the in the uh, 80s and early 90s, so that was Cold War scenarios. And uh, so we just kind of bounced around. I mean, from the time I was born to the time I was in um, second grade, I think I'd lived in almost six spots. Oh, wow. Uh, and then my dad uh, took a, uh, and I didn't really know, uh, my, my, my memories of that are, inter- you know, they're, they're hit and miss because you're moving so much, you don't really, you kind of almost lose concept of it. Uh, my baseball memories didn't really kick in until Guam. My dad, when I was in about halfway through second grade, uh, he took a, uh, we were in Spokane, Washington, uh, where I ended up going to high school. But at that time, in the early 80s, he was stationed at Fairchild. Uh, and um, we, he took a, um, uh, a deal where he got shipped off to Guam. So he took an assignment in Guam. Uh, little island, 30 miles long, 10 miles wide. Mm-hmm. And just tiny thing out in the Pacific. And even as a kid, you didn't think it was that big. So I can only imagine as an adult, it'd be <laughs> yeah. even smaller. Right. So, but you know what? I, I ended up, uh, that's where I kind of, I, I kind of did sports because we we're on the military base. I went to a private school off base, um, a Christian school out there, uh, just off base. And then we went to a church off base, but it was set on a bluff overlooking the ocean. It was a beautiful 
uh, scenario. Uh, I, I remember those things as kids. Those are my, my view. My memories are, are, are a lot more of images and, and I, I love adventure and I like being outside. So I, I remember those things, but, um, fall, fell in love with baseball there. Uh, okay. and because we got sports there so late, you remember in the eighties, there was no, there's no internet. There's no like, yeah. you know, there's no Wi-Fi. There's right. no streaming. So the games that we got on TV were usually three or four days old. They, oh, they, they okay. weren't right away, mm. you know. Um, but I watched them just to kind of have a feeling of what it was like because you, 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 di- you did know you were on an island 17 hours from a flight from the U.S. You, wow. know, you, you were way out there. But that was your community. That was your area. Uh, you obviously, Guam has a naval base and it has an Air Force base, and they have the locals and called Guamanians, and and they have more of a Latin culture. Uh, and and then so for me, it was just we were on the military base all the time. Our beach was on the base, so we go there. My dad would take us off to go different uh, for exploring, but mainly our community was there. Baseball was it. It was red dirt. It's that old. Mm-hmm. Island red dirt where your uniform started white. And by the time the season was over, it was just stained, <laughs> just yeah. somewhat red. Yeah, you, your parent, your mom couldn't even wash it, and it was like yeah, not going to happen. Uh, and I just remember loving baseball and wearing uh, teams, and all your teams were were the same teams as over in in, a, in on the mainland there. And so you just, I think one one year I was on the Cubs, and I just remembered being a part of all of that and and just playing and loving being outside and running around and and then when my dad got brought back to the states he was in merced california uh castle air force base which is kind of the top gun of the air force he was an instructor uh and we stayed there from my fifth grade through my eighth grade years and really that was uh baseball unfolded even more because now i got to go to the giants games and the a's games i kind of grew up in those stadiums um, my dad would take me, and I remember when I was oh twelve years old, uh, I was in a, I was in the Oakland A's Coliseum, and uh, I was watching my favorite guy, Dave Stewart, was pitching. I just actually saw him the other day in the lobby of my hotel, and I still look at him. Uh, he was there for a Will Clark retirement. They retired Will's uh, jersey, and he was there for it. And I remember looking at Dave in the in the, and I don't get starstruck anymore because it's kind of I yeah. live that life, but. Just looking at Dave Stewart, and I was like, man, that guy was – I mean, he was my favorite pitcher other than Randy Johnson, but he was my favorite local. I, I, I love watching him compete, and I just still looked at that. Like, mm. I remember the game I went to that you were pitching, and I got to be close to the field. My dad got me tickets close to the field. Usually we're in the nosebleeds. This time he got me, you know, right up close. And um, watching Mark McGuire and – Jose, all these guys, Canseco, you know, just Gallego, half the team was, now I look at it, I've had those guys as coaches even. And, and and I just remember watching and just saying my dad, I said, and watching Dave pitch, and I was like, man, I looked at my dad and said, I'm going to play here one day. Oh, yeah, cool. And he patted me on the head. <laughs> like, all go, right. go get him, kid, you know. <laughs> and I didn't do camps. I didn't do special instruction. I mean, we were Air Force. I mean, that's just what we did. We just played because that was a thing you did. And 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 I I remember I was, you know, 20 years old when I or 22 years old when I walked into that same Coliseum. Wow. And I just remember uh, calling my dad on my Nokia phone. 
Oh, the snake game. You remember? That? You, yeah. you might not remember. I remember what they look like. Do you remember? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This indestructible. Our B. Our biggest thing was a one three seven eight snake game. You know, trying to chase the dot. You know, and I called him on that phone and I said, "Dad, you know where I'm at?" He's like, "Yeah, you're in Oakland." I'm like, "Yeah." Do you remember what happened here? He's like, "I'm not following." I'm like, "Dad, I see the same seats in uh, that we sat in. I see him. I'm, I'm in the same stadium. Dave Sewer is pitching. I'm looking at those seats. At Dad, I, tonight I pitch in Oakland." Mm-hmm. He hangs up the phone. And I'm like, that's weird. That was not what I was thinking was going to happen. <laughs> and I called my and my dad. They don't sell. They they still had their home phone or whatever. And and I called and my mom answered. I said, Mama. I said, Dad just hung up on me. He's like, Yeah, he's crying oh, because man. he finally kind of understood. Yeah, that concept of what took place there. Like he 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 did remember that. It just took him a little bit, and then. He probably he just said I finally understood like we having outside and playing and you were living in all these different places that we didn't necessarily know what would come of it because military brats either a lot of times become military because mm-hmm. they don't understand what to do or they just they have a hard time um, maybe locking down a situation because they get cabin fever right they 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 don't know how to how to yeah. stay in one spot yeah. and. There, it's something that can be difficult for them growing up, and and thankfully God put me in a place where I had to move around a lot in baseball, and I had to bounce around, and um, but I think He understood it, and and I just I, I remember just all the experiences that I had of traveling and playing high school baseball, and 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 giving it everything I got, and and just competing came from the fact that that's all I knew what to do. It's all I knew how to do. I, I didn't know how to do anything else but compete because as a military kid, that's what we did. We didn't have video games. And part of it was so awesome because you had to compete with all the kids in your neighborhood. You were all competing against each other for something because that's all that's you. That was your community. Yeah. And yep. and so I was a very competitive kid and and I just that's all that's and, and I remember playing with a uh, one of my uh, teammates and a good friend of mine named Paul Bird, uh, we were playing in Kansas City together, and he looked at me and he said, you know what pitching is? And I go, what's that? He's like, I was like, I don't know. I said, can you sing? I said, no, you've heard me sing because I had to sing on the bus as a rookie. It's kind of <laughs> hazing. And uh, he said, yeah, I can't sing either. He says, you know what pitching is? Pitching is the purest form of worship that you and I have mm. because God has given us this skill. Yeah. And that is our, that's our altar, man. We go out there and we give it everything we got. It's our talent. We don't bury it in the sand. We maximize it. He goes, and, and, and I remember him saying that to me, and I built that into my system as a pitcher. Like, literally, I would pray on the mount all the time. It was my form of worship. Like, I prayed all the time. I talked to myself on the mound. People would say, what are you saying? And I'm just praying. I'm like asking God for wisdom. I'm I'm I'm, I'm telling him that I'm I'm a little tight. I'm telling him, hey God, I need you to relax me right here. You know, I'm, I would just talk and pitch at the same time yeah. because it truly was my form of worship. You know, and so I was very thankful. So, the number of men who make it to the major leagues is a very very small percentage of people. Mm-hmm. So, at what point in your life was it? evident that you had a pitching arm that was in that you know level of ability yeah i'd say my junior year of high school uh i, I was kind of one of those guys that that grew slow like after my freshman year I, I i was i was good at baseball that's the one thing i worked hardest at 
I, I had to actually, or excuse me, I, I actually, I worked hard at it. I wouldn't say the hardest. Basketball ended up becoming one of my favorite sports to play because I actually had to work the hardest at being good at that. I mm. still love college basketball today. I I, I love it. I, I understand the concept of it. Baseball, my brain worked off of that. Um, kind of a linear thinker. So, but I also, um, I don't love, let's say I don't love failing, but I can handle it. And that's baseball. If you can't handle fail, you, failure, you're not going to do well at baseball. Yeah. And and I, but I didn't fail a whole lot uh, as a pitcher because I kind of had a natural ability to throw hard, even as a smaller kid. And because I wasn't, man, in my freshman year, I was five foot four. I mean, my son is put that in perspective. He's going to be a freshman. He's six five. 235 he's ginormous yeah so like (laughs) so that i don't understand that i I tell him if i would have had your frame as a freshman i would have been that would have been awesome you know and so it'd be you know because i have that competitive side that would use that frame but i competed like i was six five just because of what i was used to so i always kind of threw somewhat hard i didn't yeah, as a freshman, you were kind of in the pack of of older kids. I was on varsity my freshman year. I I I pitched in the game to send us to state for the first time in ten years when I when I was on my I was at a small Christian school, and so I was competitive, but I wasn't necessarily the cream. I wasn't up there velocity wise. But then my okay. junior year, something happened, and something happened, and I all of a sudden started throwing like eighty eight miles an hour. But I didn't do anything different. I just, what I learned is I just wanted to throw really far a lot. So I would just, I think it was God's way of like, I didn't go to camp. So I think God just kind of, I felt like he kind of orchestrated my life all along. Mm. Because I didn't try to go to the big leagues. I didn't try to to play college, want to go to college to play baseball. I just... I just wanted to throw far just because I wanted to outthrow everybody else. I want to throw further than everybody else. Well, that actually gave me arm speed and long toss, which I learned when I was in pro ball is what maintains and builds your arm speed. I just did it just cause I was competitive and all of a sudden 80, 80, 90, 90 miles an hour, everybody's blown away. You know, I was, didn't, I just like throwing as hard as I could and, and throwing all these pitches and scouts started showing up at my summer league games. And then I was throwing 93 as a senior. And that's when to me it was when I watched TV, I watched, major league pitchers throwing 88 to 93 and i'm like well i throw that yeah right now you know i can't throw with command like they can but i can throw that and so i kind of had an idea that i was um Mm. that i had the ability to do it i didn't necessarily have the i knew i needed to be cleaned up but uh, and then when i signed with a full ride with gonzaga they gave me a four-year full ride right out the gate and I, i i ended up getting drafted by the royals in the third round and i took that instead um, but that was kind of when I was like, I have the ability. Now it's going to take the work. And yeah. that's what I had to learn in the minor leagues. That I had to work. It wasn't just going to be given to you. Yeah, you that's know? an interesting road, the, mm-hmm. the minors. I love what you just said a few minutes ago is you don't like failure, but you can handle it. Yeah. Man, you could write a book on that topic right there. Mm-hmm. Just because f- that's just a principle of life. Yeah. Failure is inevitable. But it's the ability to handle it that really decides one's future or one's path. So many people, they can't handle failure, and it really wrecks their whole mentality of how they go about their career, their marriage, their 
relationships. Man, that's a really, really powerful concept. Thanks for, for throwing that in there. Um, so White's got a couple questions he wanted to ask you. I've got a couple of baseball questions yeah. I want to ask you, and then we'll explore some of that other thing. White, you got yeah. something? Well, no, I just kind of wanted to piggyback off of Paul. You had said that you never kind of like, I guess you did that conversation with your dad whenever you were young, but you never really, I guess, you said God orchestrated your life as far as the MLB and going uh, goes. Do you think it was just that you said you it was just the competition against the other people that you were around? So you yeah. just wanted to throw further than them. And so I guess was it just the competition, I guess, idea that pushed you to actually become good enough to do that? Is that, is that what you were saying? Yeah, I, I just didn't. So I think there's, there's two different things that happen in everybody's life, uh, but athletes especially. Uh, so one thing I, I mean, I've, I've said this a few times and, and I, I could get crucified over it uh, from other athletes, but athletes are in, no matter what they do, no matter how they act, they're insecure people uh, because they have fear. They have two fears. They are a fear of failure or a fear of success. A fear, a fear of failure drives them. It's probably what I had um, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to lose. I didn't want to be a part of a losing situation. I wanted to make sure I did not. I just, I, I, I feared it in probably a healthy way and an unhealthy way. Um, and I'll explain that in a minute. The other, the other uh, fear is fear of success because they feel like, oh my gosh, I had a really good year. Now I'm, I got this contract and now I have to fulfill that contract. So everybody's expectations go up yeah that because comes your base then yeah uh, because i mean if you look at all these things think about like let's you don't have to take baseball you can take take basketball steph curry like he obviously is a very confident human being and he's a phenomenon shooting but he doesn't fear success he might fear failure and that's why he practices as long as he does but if he feared success he would panic a lot more because everybody thinks well you you gotta you gotta make a certain amount of how do, you, how do you not make a 50-footer? 50 you should be making half-court shots. Yeah. You get paid to make half-court shots. No, I don't. I don't get paid to make half-court shots. You think I get paid to make. Yeah. But the team has also Expert. promoted him as making half-court shots. Mm -hmm. It's all they promote. So it's that fear of success that some guys, they panic, and then mm -hmm. they can't relax and just be them because they're, they're, they're feeling like they have to fulfill an expectation that – is not humanly possible because we're not computers, right? So I see it a lot in baseball. Guys get big contracts, and then they just don't do well. And everybody's yeah. like, oh, he stinks. No, pretty sure he wouldn't have got paid that much money if he stinks. He stinks right now because he's probably panicking. He's probably not playing like he was playing when there was no expectations. Right. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I, I feared failure uh, to a point where uh, I functioned – uh, in a, I was able to be very functional and comfortable in high anxiety, mm. uh, which is not a good thing, uh, because what you find out is you, if you don't have anxiety, you tend to create it. So it's a, or you tend to be okay with being anxious, but then you can't ever get that. But other people aren't okay being in an anxious environment. So right, if you right. thrive in it, they don't necessarily thrive in it. So now you got people that I, I don't know how to function in that, but I can't relate to you until I'm in that. And so it's actually can become dysfunctional. Yeah. And so for me, you know, I, 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 I 
tend to do okay. But I've also found that as I've gotten healthier in life emotionally, I do not like it anymore. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like drama. I never really have. I just am okay functioning in it because I had to function in drama for so long because baseball was always dramatic. It was highs and lows. It was competing cities literally living their life through you and putting their whole identity in whether you win or lose. And right. what have you done for me lately, which is a high anxiety scenario. Yeah. And, and, uh, but I, I just know through my whole life, my dad leaving to and not coming back for two weeks. Cause you didn't know where he was at. Couldn't call you cause he was on these missions and he just left. And then, coming and going there, moving all the time, having to make friends quickly, knowing I was going to have to leave and not have, have to make new friends to competing to, you know, just, and then right into baseball that was no longer, a, no longer fun in the sense of like, you don't just go to play cause it's fun to do. You actually are making money and other people are making money off you. So you, yeah, it's a different atmosphere, you know? So yeah. uh, I function probably very well in fear of failure. Um, uh, which is, like I said, it can be healthy to a point, but I'd say that I was probably on the un more on the unhealthy side. So how do you find the balance between the two, between fearing failure and kind of seeking out, or, or not fearing failure, um, or no, yeah, fearing failure, but then also whenever you do experience failure, being able to take it and grow from it? Yeah, so once I figured out that failure for me, uh, towards the end of my career, and in retirement now, because I, I run my, I, I, train, I, I try to lead my boys under this deal. Failure is a very, um, it's a negative, it's such a bad word in my opinion, because failure automatically creates fear. You yeah. say the word failure, people are fearful of even talking about it. Mm -hmm. Where I say teachable moments. Mm -hmm. You have success where you ride the wave. Like, ride that wave. Like, there's nothing wrong with riding the waves of success. Great. You only got there because you learned from when you failed. So for me, it was, it's teachable moments. I don't have a, a, the fear of failure is because as human beings, we say you fail or we say your job depends on if you succeed or fail. I take it more as teachable moments mm. because if I can learn from my mistakes, I'll probably quote unquote fail less. Yeah. doesn't mean I won't fail. Just, learn from them or I won't have a failure where I think most people allow people to fail. But then when people fear it, they get put in this downward spiral where they can't get out of it. So now their one bad decision becomes 10 bad decisions. And then it's just a chaotic mess and you lose every jobs, families, uh, friendships, marriages, everything just becomes like chaos. Right. Yeah. So for me to balance it is, my identity is not in being a baseball player. My identity is not being uh, an owner of a business. My identity is not in public speaking. My identity is, frankly, not in being a dad. My identity is in Jesus Christ. So when I'm Christ in Jeremy, that view is a lot different for me because now when I fail in that, it's like, no, it's a teachable moment. That's something I'm supposed to learn something from this, yeah. not say I failed in this. And that has helped me tremendously. And a simpler concept, I guess, would be um, I, I look at some of these young kids who, who are playing now, and, and they'll look at me, and they'll be like, man, I suck. And I'm like, no, no, you don't. You suck today, but right. you don't 
suck. Yeah. Like, and when I fail as a pitcher, I'm not a bad pitcher. I was just a bad pitcher today. Yeah. But if you learn from it, you can become a good pitcher. So it's how your identity really kicks sure. in. And so I, I, I just don't like, you know, that fear of failure, man, for me, I, I would say looking back, I, I did have a, I did not like to, I do not, like I said, I don't, I, I don't like failing, but I'm, but I can function in it because I don't like being taught a lesson. No one does. No one likes necessarily living the lesson to be taught. Sure. But it's a good thing. Yeah. And it, then you love the success or you love the peace that comes out of it because you've learned from that mistake. Right. And so, you know, I, 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 I think that I look at, (laughs) I look at an old guy sitting on a porch, uh, just sit there at a rocket chair, just in a peaceful life. And you're looking at that guy and you're like, he's learned a lot in life. Mm -hmm. He's finally at that moment where he's like, I've learned. Yeah. Now I just rest. Yeah. Wise people are folks who understand that failure is often the greatest path to success. If you take it from the learning perspective, you know, uh, there's the phrase, you win some, you lose some in triathlon. They say you win some and you learn some Mm -hmm. that if you take those failures, you didn't perform like you thought you should have, then there's some sort of a a lesson to learn about training or execution or preparation that if you, if you'll take that lesson and rather beat yourself up over it, take the lesson and then employ it in your next training session or your next race, you become a better athlete. So I agree. So that's interesting. Tell me in a real practical sense, when you get the call in the bullpen and you're coming out onto the field and they open that gate and you're coming in from the outfield, what, what's going through a pitcher's mind as you make that journey to the mound, man, you know, routine's important. Uh, so you don't allow too many things into your mind. Mm. Uh, I think that what I would go in, I always had a, I always had a, a catcher. Uh, he's an older guy. He's in his fifties, sixties at the time. And he, he always caught my bullpens. He was a, a catching coach as well, but he would catch my bullpens before I go into the game and I'd run in and I, uh, like I said, routines, everything I run by him and the gate would open and I, I'd stop before I go in and I just take it all in. Cause I like to be present with the situation, the energy, you know, I just like the okay, because it locks you in, you know. And I sit there and I stand there, and there'll be times where I, I kind of would stop and I'd look back at him, and he'd go, "Oh, sorry, hey, don't tank it, thanks." <laughs> I actually need like he would say it all the time, "Don't tank it." When he wouldn't say it, I'd look at him like, "Dude, come on, you, you, you I, I, I gotta have my rhythm because you gotta, I gotta jump." So he's like, "Oh yeah, don't tank it." Run in there. And what it did was actually relax you because it was like, yeah, I don't want to tank it, but you even joking around about not tanking it. Yeah. It makes it lighter. Sure. Right. Takes that pressure off. Yeah. Yeah. It's not so like, uh, you know, and I liked it. And then when I'm running in, it was literally, I ran in and the game was what it was. The score was what it was. The guys that are on the base are not on the base. That is what it is. So now what is my job? And I learned to what I would do running in. Or what are my controllables? My controllables are not those guys on the base. I didn't put them on there. My controllables are not that it's two to one. That's the offense's fault. My controllable is throwing strikes. Quality strikes, executing the pitches that I know I'm supposed to execute against the guys that are coming up that I'm supposed to face. 
to give my team the best chance to get out. Doesn't mean I will. I've thrown balls right on the black. Guys have flipped it over first base for a double. I've thrown balls down the middle. They've smashed the ball right at the shortstop for an out. Like, I don't, I can't control where the ball goes. And that's why baseball is super hard. That's why failure is not failure. It's what did I learn? Well, I would say that if I threw a ball on the black and he flipped it for a double, it was frustrating, but I threw where I wanted. So I'm okay, not, what's what's the black? Yeah, so it's the ball. So when I say the black, sorry, it's the black line right along the plate. So oh, okay. on the edge of the plate, okay. which is the perfect strike because you don't want to throw over the big white part. That is the the area you're supposed to throw over the white part of the plate, but I'm going to try just to throw just barely on the white part of the plate because right. that's the furthest away or the furthest in. And the so you could say closest to the handle, uh-huh. which is okay. where you break bats, or furthest away from the end of the, uh, the barrel where you hit off the end, it breaks a bat and weak hits. So I would try not to throw it down the middle. Well, I mean, I've thrown it down the middle, and I've been more upset about getting it out right there, knowing that if I do that, it's not – I got an out there, but 90% of the time, that's probably not going to end like that. Now, if I throw the ball on the corner and he flips over for a double, frustrating, could have beat me. People are frustrated not at the pitch. They're just frustrated that baseball was baseball, and we didn't end up on the right side of the stick on that. But they would say, you keep throwing that you're going to get more outs and you're going to get yeah. doubles over first. So yeah. it's a very difficult thing, but I would only control my controllables, and that's where I could throw the ball. How can I get outs in the best way I can and get weak contact? And that's all I focused on because if I started focusing on, well, what if this or, oh, man, there's a lot of people here today. There's energy or, man, we got to win this game. And it, it's too much. Yeah. And it's you're not simplifying the game. And baseball is so much like life, like simplifying life is not what if I wake up today and oh my man, I sure hope I get my kids. I I hope my kids don't get in trouble at school or I hope that I I hope I do this or man, I got to do this today or I can't forget about that. Ah, that's too much. There's too much anxiety. There's too much chaos. and, and, And then you end up doing worse and you have a bad day yeah, yeah. Uh, by focusing on things that you can't control. And so for me, I just ran in and was like, is I caught, I said a kiss. I had it on my, I, I had it on my, uh, my hat for a while when I was younger Then I put it on my, my glove and it's keep it simple, stupid, like <laughs> just keep everything simple and don't make too much out of everything and understand that you've got to, for me, it was I had to give up control. I had to give up. I had to relinquish control to God that said, I've worked really hard. I've done everything I can do, similar to the tandem bicycle that I that I said a couple weeks ago, uh, is I just got on the back of that bike and I rode as hard as I possibly could and I let God steer. I gave it everything I got. I prepared everything, I every way I could. I feel good. My thoughts are right. I'm just going to flat out compete. And if I don't win, if I if it doesn't happen today... Nothing I can do about it. I can't control the. I can't control the. I can't control the future. I can't control anything that necessarily happens. I can only control how I react to it, and I can only control how I prepare for it, and then I let God do the rest. Yeah. So you spoke at our church uh, two weeks ago. Um, I was out of uh, out of the saddle, and you came in and did a great job. And we've gotten really, really wonderful feedback about your message. But the thing that most people have referred to is this 
illustration or this discussion about the tandem bicycle. I haven't heard the entire message. Tell me, tell me what you were sharing with that illustration. Yeah. So, you know, when I was in the eight, when I was in a ball, I was not doing very well, uh, but I was a prospect. So I was, I was kept around, which tends to happen. Uh, and so I remember just struggling and, and being so frustrated and wanting the end goal and wanting the wins or wanting success or wanting what I viewed as what I needed to do to get put in the big leagues to happen. So I was like forcing it and I was getting mad that it wasn't working out in my favor. And I'm like, uh, and, and I was trying to do what everybody tries to do at a young age is I tried to force my career to be what I thought it should be. And that never works, but you have to learn that. And I was sitting with a, a, a pastor uh, his name was Al Egg. Uh, he's out of Portland. And he did some stuff with athletes, and, and he was at a conference. And I was sitting with him, and I was talking about my frustration. He, he came up to me after a conference, and he's like, hey, going into the season, I want you to do something for me. And he handed me a sticker of a tandem bicycle, and he said, put it in your Bible. And whenever you get frustrated, just open your Bible. and Look at that sticker. I'm like, all right. Then he says, a tandem bicycle, two people pedal one person steers so he goes you have to ask yourself what part of the bike are you on and if you're pedaling as hard as you can and you're frustrated and you're trying to force things to happen or you're trying to like that's not fair the umpire blew it or all these things are you on the front of the bicycle or are you on the back because the back says you just pedal it's all you can do and you can only help forward the motion of the bike but you cannot steer it so if that front guy on the bike takes a left you're going left and all you can do is pedal as hard as you can to take you down that road that went left because you did not steer you have no responsibility there's no well i leaned right so we went right no the steer goes and uh i i, I remember my parents grew up they rode a tandem bicycle their whole life I mean, that's the, my mom got on my dad on the front. They, they, so I knew exactly what a tandem bicycle did. And so it related with me so much because it was like, oh, my, you're right. Like, I have no choice. And he said, so anytime that you start feeling that you are spiraling out of control or, or things are just, you're just emotionally just like I can't, nothing's going right, always ask yourself what part of the bike you're on. And that's it's helped great. me through my entire career. I would. I had moments, man, and then my expectation level set in where I was getting paid to a certain amount of money, where they expected me to compete at a certain way. My body's hurting. I'm getting paid to do a role that's a high, high, high stress role, and and I had to constantly be like, mm, I'm just on the back. I need to get on the back, pedal as hard as I could, and I did work hard. I worked hard my whole career, and I had a routine. They made fun of how I did stuff. They. I did towel drills every day. I did, I, I did a, I rode a stationary bike every day. I, uh, but I, and I watched video, but I had a routine and I worked really hard because the one thing that I did not want in the back of my head that day is did I put in the work to be ready to compete today? I did not want to ask myself that going into a game because that was a distraction because now I would think about, well, I didn't prepare very well. And then I would and then if I didn't throw well, I would be like, ah, it's because I'm not prepared. And then it would be too much yeah. rather than just like, no, I put in the work. So I can go to bed tonight knowing that I worked as hard as I could. I got on the back of that seat and I rode that bike as hard as I could. 
and they did not steer it. And I'm going to get up tomorrow, and I'm going to do the same thing. Because in the end, if this career of mine does not go how I wanted to go, I got to trust that God said, yeah, but the way that I wanted it to go is a lot better than the way that you want it to go. And regardless of what you think or how you think yeah. it should go, and that's what you need to relax in. And it's happened that way my whole life. Like I mentioned, I lost my 22-year marriage. Did not want it. I was like, oh. What just happened? I mean, life was just caving in, and uh, I had to get on the back of that bike. I'm just going to ride. Like, I got to trust you, and it wasn't my decision. It takes two to tango. I wasn't perfect in the deal, but I had to just ride the bike. Mm-hmm. And, man, God has he, ha- he has done it again. Like, like I, am, I have a lot of joy. I have a lot of peace. i raising amazing boys. This brewery that I've got has come to fruition. I've asked God to 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 just take it and do what He wants with it. And I'm I'm I, once again I'm not finding myself in the necessarily how I thought everything would go, but I'm finding myself having a lot of joy and a lot of peace and a lot of and I've learned I'm a better dad because of it. Uh, you know, like I've just allowed God to to take care of me, and I will be a better husband to my next wife because of what I went through, even though it wasn't my thought or my, my, my how I saw it being drawn up, I, I truly am better, and yeah. I truly am uh, a, a better person, and got on the back of the bike, man, I, and I don't have any kind of apologies for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a really powerful image. Thanks for, for sharing that. All right, so um, I played baseball through the sixth grade, Nothing, just little league stuff, and then we moved, and I never got involved in it anymore after that. So my understanding of the game of baseball is very limited. Yeah. So I got a couple questions for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you, because I didn't even play baseball. When I, was young, so <laughs> I got no idea what's going on. Uh, so funny. the reliever comes in yeah. late in the game. What you said, the seventh, eighth, ninth innings. Usually about that, yeah. Okay. But the starting picture gets the win. Mm. Explain that to me. Yeah, so the starting pitcher, the way it works is uh, Elias Sports Bureau. They kind of control stats, and they kind of dictated how this works. So the the they because it's really hard to figure out who gets a win because you could go say five innings and do really really well. Um, and say you're winning when you come out of the game. Say the starter comes out in the fifth inning or sixth inning. Well, they pitched long enough into the game and had a win, so you just held the win, which is what a hold is, and then you brought it to a guy that that comes in and makes sure and saves if it's three runs or less, meaning the tying run could come to the plate. Mm. So if you're up by three runs or less, that means the if 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 three hitters all hit homers – the game becomes tied or they win. So if they can take a win away, it's a save. So if you're okay. up by, say, four runs, okay, and your closer has to come in in the eighth, well, he's facing the amount of hitters that could have all hit homers off him to tie the game. or So he will get a save if he comes in the eighth, up by four runs or five runs. So really it's the ninth oh. inning, three runs or less. That's kind of dictated. That's how your save comes into play. But basically a save is when you come into the game, and you face the number of hitters that allowed you to, to to lose the game, you get a save. So a starter could go five 
and a reliever could go four, that reliever is going to go get a save. Okay. Even though it was a four-inning save, but you can also get a one-out save. You can get – it just depends on what that that person coming to the plate is to the game mm-hmm. and when you pitch and, and who is on pitcher of record. So a win is kind of the same thing. It's the pitcher of record that when he left the game, were you winning or were you losing? So – but a starter could come in the first inning – and your team could put up 10 runs or whatever it is. And the starter come in and he comes in his inning. He gives up seven runs in the first inning. It's 10 to seven. Both starting pitchers get pulled and now relievers come in the second. So they're like, well, who gets the win? Do you give the starter guy that came out for one inning, gave up seven runs a win when he didn't even pitch the majority of the game? He pitched one to start the game. No. Nope. You don't. So what they said is whoever the pitcher of record is when they're winning at the end of the fifth inning, they had to kind of put a some sort of mark in there to, yeah. to make it worth it. Uh, and so that's how a starter gets it. Now a reliever can get a win by coming in the sixth, seventh inning, up two to one, give up a homer, and they tie it 2-2. Two, two. He finishes the seventh, 2-2. Two, two. Your team comes in and goes ahead three to two and you're still a pitcher of record a reliever comes in for you holds it and saves it that pitcher oh, okay. gets the w now so you can take a win away from a starter and get a <laughs> w because it's basically after the fifth okay so they say whoever the pitcher of record is when the their the the winning run or the or the win is established after the fit, that's that's who gets it. So it can be a okay. starter, it can be a reliever, depending. So a, a reliever may not get nearly as many wins as a starter, but the uh, the reliever sort of builds his resume on his success of coming in and getting the team out of a pickle or protecting them from a loss. Yep, maintaining. Yep, out of a loss. Yep. How do I how do I help you now? If you're up ten to two in the eighth, you don't get anything as a reliever. You're just like. Congratulations, we just needed an arm because we had to finish the game. Usually it's always in the tight situation. Uh, holds are were brought in later in the 2000s, uh, actually mid-2000s, is when they started giving holds to relievers because when you go to contract and arbitration situation, they didn't know how to compare a 7th, 8th inning guy. So, you know, they had a closer save, so that's an actual stat, and they had a win, which is an actual stat, a reliever having too many wins is not good because that means a couple things. You could pitch in a lot of close games, which that's good. that's fine. And so it's tied a lot. Say it's tied. I got 10 wins, but I was in 22 ball games that it was a 1-1 tie when I came in, and I happened to be the pitcher on record when we scored the winning run, but I held it to 1-1, right? Mm-hmm. So those can be uh, good and bad. It could be because you just blew the game. You know, and so you get a win because you're the pitcher on record. So those are kind of tough. So the, so teams didn't know how to compare those middle relievers because there, there's so many conflicting scenarios. Was his 10 wins good? Were they bad? Were they because he didn't do his job and then he just got lucky? All these things. Well, the hold came in because it was a stat that gave these relievers, like me in my situation, a 7th, 6th, 7th, 8th inning guy, uh, a stat to be able to say, no, I held the game to where it was at and allowed my team to have a chance to win. So I held it. So that's a hold. And so if you don't give up 
And it can be construed too because if you're up by three and you give up two, you technically held a win, so you get a hold. You didn't pitch great, but you get a hold. But saves can be that way too. A reliever, a, a, a closer could come into the game up four games, four to one, and give up two runs and still get a save. So all they did is try to make a quote unquote version of a save for a sixth, seventh, eighth inning guy because they needed something to judge his performances okay. off okay. of. So you have wins, holds, and, and saves now. That's and it helped us because we ended up getting contracts accordingly. Oh, okay. Yeah, it so did that's help That's an influence on negotiating oh, yeah. contracts. Yep. Oh, that's Absolutely. interesting. Okay, uh, second question. Tell me about the conversations that happen on the mound when the coach comes out or when your infield comes in. Around. What's what's being talked about there? I, I've never yeah. known. We just had that question. I was at a fundraiser, my fundraiser event in San Francisco, and uh, Bochi, who was Hall of Fame manager, my manager for the Giants, uh, and then uh, uh, two pitchers, Contos and myself, and then Hunter Pence was on the. I uh, was with us too, but he's an outfielder. He didn't do anything when pitchers when coaches came to the mound. So we, someone asked that same thing. What do you guys actually talk about? Funny thing is, it just really depends. I mean, I've, I mean, I've had uh, people come out to the mound, and I've seen my pitching coach come out to the mound, and I'll stare at him. And 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 so my one with the Giants, forget Dave Rigetti, we called him Rags. He come out to the mound, and I just look at him, and he would look at me. He's like, I know you don't want me out here. Yeah, what are you going to tell me? <laughs> Throw a strike? No joke. Like, <laughs> what can you possibly tell me right now? Like, hey, you know, we got to get a double play ball. I realize there's a guy in first and second, and I know that I need a double play ball. So what are you doing out here to tell you? know, So he hated, he, he did not like it when I was on the when he had to come out and talk to me because he's like, and, and a lot of times he'd come out and he's like, I know you don't want me out here. I'm not saying nothing. I'm just going to stand here until the umpire comes and gets me. Do they have to go out? Well, what they'll do is they'll slow the game down to mm. get somebody warmed up. Uh, so rags will come out sometimes just to be like, you already know you stink. So <laughs> I'm going to tell you that. I'm just trying to give a guy time to warm up. Okay. So you can quit stinking out here so we can have a chance. Yeah. So there's that. Or it could be a situation where I'm hitting and missing, and I'm like, man, I cannot find it right now. And he might see something. So he'll come out, mm. and he'll, be like, he'll run out and say, hey, what are you feeling? I'm like, I'm, I'm just, I'm jumping. I can't. He's like, you're right. You are. You're hitting and missing. I need you. Remember, you got to, whatever, you know, he knows us by working yeah. with us. So he'd be like, hey, remember, I need you to feel that. For me, it was like, I need you to feel that balance point over your back leg before you decide to go home. You're kind of leaving in that you tend to be going too early. Your arm's dragging. You're pushing your sinker. And my sinker gets flat. It's hittable. So he's like, just stay back a little longer because for whatever reason right now in this game, in this situation, your body is wanting to go before you're supposed to go. So you're, you're, you're a little jumpy for whatever it could be. Yeah. And that literally can be for whatever reason. You might have had a fight with your wife for the game and you're just frazzled and angry. And so, you you know, or you or you you are thinking about the wrong conversation or there, it could be off the field stuff that's bothering the guy. Oh, okay. You know, so he's just like, hey, for whatever reason. You're a little anxious. You're jumping. I need you to slow it down. Slow it down about a half a second. So just kind of stay on that back leg, and then he'll run back. And sometimes it, he'll he'll fix you that way, right? So there's some of those things going on, but man, I mean, when it honestly, there's some. Sometimes they're just trying to break up a conversation. This literally, they I've seen them do this to kids in the minor leagues. It's hilarious. These kids are on the mound and. 
and they're freaking out, and a pitching coach will run out there, and he'll stand up, and he'll look, and there'll be a, a, a young lady right over the dugout. And he'll be like, hey, when I go out there, I'm going to point at you. If I point, just wave. And they'll be like, what? Just wave. So the coach will go out there and be like, hey, what? Settle down. Quit freaking out. That young lady right there, she thinks you're cute. <laughs> and he'll look at the young lady, and he'll point at her, and the girl will wave. She has no idea. what she, She's just doing what the guy said to do. Like, right. And what it does is just for a little bit of moment, just be like, yeah, takes you out of the situation, and the kid will start pitching good, right? So, like, it's just those little moments, and you actually do it. I mean, I you do it. You technically do it in Little League. When you run out and your pitcher's all over the place, you run out and be like, hey, what? Listen, your mom's got pizza at the house. I need you to throw strikes because I'm getting hungry. And she's got your favorite pizza, dude. So, And so you see this little 10-year-old all of a sudden lock in and throw strikes because he's just thinking about the pizza that his mom's got at the house. Like, those, those we still do the same things in still baseball. It's just, break. Yeah, it's just like yeah, sometimes. Kind of reset. It, yeah, just come out and just be like, ah, I don't know. Like, I, hey man, I mean, busters come out to me plenty of times. Like, bro, you 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 got us reservations at a sushi restaurant. We're gonna miss that if you keep <laughs> pitching like this because we're gonna play thirteen innings. So I do not want to play thirteen innings. I want to go eat sushi. And he runs back. And he, <laughs> so those hilarious. are the kind of things they say. Like sometimes it's just a little, and then sometimes they area out, and you know. So it's just it's just different, you know. Okay, so here's my last question. I was I came home the other night. Charlotte, my my wife watches more sports than I do. Yeah. She's got baseball on. San Diego Padres are playing in their community connect uniforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what in the world are they wearing? So yeah. my question to you, as a player who has to wear something yeah. that looks like that, does that mess with your head? I, You know what? After At first, you're like, we have to wear that out there. Like, come on. Like, but then after a while, you just go out there and you're like, well, we're all wearing it. So <laughs> yep. it's not just one guy looking like an idiot. It's just like, hey, we're all wearing it. Do it. Yeah, pease it. The worst ones for me were the, the, the old-timer uniforms because they all used to wear their pants yeah. up. Yeah. Right? The long socks. Right? So the long socks and the wool. Well, some players do that now, so they're like standard uniform. But a guy like me, so my my last three four years, I had to pitch in a, um, I had a torn MCL, so I pitched in a big huge knee brace that just kind of kept my MCL from from right. rolling out because it would stabilize my leg. And uh, <laughs> so when you got to wear that and you got to pull, well, we wear bag your pants to go over our brace. Well, when you're pulling your knee, your you have to wear these wool pants that don't come. To your barely come to your knees, and then you have this big leg brace on that you can't really get the pants over, and then you got the sock you're supposed to pull over it. I mean, it looks like a peg leg out there. So, like, <laughs> those are the most awkward times, and you're pitching out there. And the problem is, is you're pitching, and you look at your dugout, and they're laughing at you because they're telling you <laughs> you look like an idiot. So they're reminding you of it, you know. So those are the where I hated the old time. They were hot. They were uncomfortable. They didn't fit right. But then the stuff they have to wear now, we didn't have to wear a lot of that. Our we had the the worst one I wore was the orange uh, jersey, uh, and we still they still wear them, and we wore them. But I always thought they made us look like big pumpkins out there because it was just bright orange. Uh, I did not. I like standard. I like the cream whites and the gray. 
that's I liked. I didn't like yeah. all the other weird colors. Uh, it just didn't make sense to me. I just wanted to feel normal. Uh, now they got like the Giants have like white, white, like this white paper, white uniforms, and they look like creamsicles out there with the mm. orange writing, the and they have like a cream. They just look like creams, but it's all those Community Connect stuff, like. I don't know why they do it. I think they do it because they're finding different ways to market, but they, I didn't like it, and it wouldn't be fun to do what they had to do now. Oh, I, I saw them. I was like, I don't think I could wear that. I mean, that is yeah. just ridiculous. Yep. That's, yep. that's funny. Um, question. As a Christian in Major League Baseball, in all that world comes with it, tell us about how that was challenging yeah. to you at times in your walk with Christ. Yeah, so I was spiritually beat up pretty good after every year, uh, and not because I got mocked. They did. They didn't mock me. Um, man, you have guys of all types of face there because you have a lot of Latin guys, so they carry a lot of the Catholicism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've got Southern boys, so you're looking at you got a lot of the Baptist scenarios in there. You've got California. You know, a lot of kids from California or 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 or, or kind of the. Even, I, I call them, they're just earthier, right? So they're like, who knows what they're into. They get astrology. They're into all kinds of stuff, right? And then you guys that just flat out don't believe in God. They're just like, ah, is, is, I just, I don't want to believe in God. And so you have all walks in your clubhouse. So you kind of tend to like, it's not like teach their own, but it's like, hey, we have to respect everybody. Because if not, we got 25 guys in here we got to hang out with for the next six months, and it's not going to be good. Mm-hmm. And you had them. You had the Bible thumper in there, and no one liked them. And they made it awkward. And I had guys that carry their Bible on the plane, off the plane, in the clubhouse. You know, they 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 carry it all the time reminding guys of who they are. I didn't work like that. I, I was more of the, you know, St. Francis of Sissy, you know, like always – basically always be a witness and when necessary use words right that was kind of my thing uh and so i did it like that i i man and and they i would i think that it was appreciated because people didn't feel judged i would have no problem having a conversation about my view of god uh when people standing next to me didn't believe in god because half the time they'd actually be kind of leaning in um but it was a constant resistance and so people were like what about going out I went out with guys, uh, had beers with guys, and I'd have a beer. And I, I remember one of my teammates said, uh, you can't have that beer. And I said, why not? Like, we are Christian. And I'm like, I didn't know that was the part of the deal. And he was Man, like. you should look at you now. Yeah. yeah no. I was like, now I make beer. You know, but now it's like, but they're like, well, you, you can't drink. I'm like, not true. I was like, but I got a question for you. Do you believe in the Bible? He's like, no. I'm like, well, then you can't judge him by the Bible. And he was like, I remember he just kind of looked at me and he was like, mm, okay. And we, he, he said, he said, get him a beer. And we just had, we had, and he actually had a conversation about Jesus with me because mm. it wasn't a, it was like, Hey, you can't, I don't judge you. You can't judge me. And yeah. unless you have a weight reason to correct me because of you have certain knowledge, I don't, I don't have to listen to it. I don't correct you on your life if you, and then people say, well, what's your opinion on us going to a strip club later? And I would always say, are you asking my opinion? Yeah, I want your opinion. Okay, well, if you're asking my opinion, I'd say that it's sexually immoral and you're looking at images that are going to cause you to have a false image of your wife or girlfriend or you're going to have 
views of women that are in, that are inappropriate because you're cheating like an object. And biblically, this is what it says. And I said, but I'm giving you that because you said, what's your opinion? Right. I don't force my opinion on them. I don't say, hey, you guys can't go to a strip joint because this, this, this. No, no. If you ask my opinion, I'll give it to you. Mm-hmm. Now, when I, how I would lead was we go out to dinner or whatever, and all the guys would go do things that I was, I literally would be like, this is where I stop. I said, hey, man, you guys enjoy your evening. Be safe. Try not to do something dumb. I don't want to get a call to have to get you guys out of jail. <laughs> I'm going to go back to my room. And I just go back to my room. And to me, it was like, hey, I have a boundary. When it's When you're asking me to cross it, I don't cross it. I don't tell you. Shame on you. I don't say anything like that because my thing was is if they don't believe in the God that I believe in and if they don't believe in the same moral code that I believe in, then I can't expect them to live under the God that I believe in or the moral code. And if I had their moral code, I would do what they're doing as well. It's, It's a temptation that is definitely enticing, but my how I live my life, I know that it would not be healthy for me. And, and so it, it's not respectful and right. I don't respect my God. I don't respect myself. And at the time I was married and that means I don't respect my wife and that's not going to fly by me. And I have a, I, I want to live like that. And everybody accepted it. And one of my best friends today, uh, I was a rookie in Kansas city and I lived by that. Even then it was just something that I always, man, I just was very thankful that I had that discipline. I really am. I, I do not think everybody does. And I don't expect everybody to, even though I think we have a moral right. I think we have a right as a reflection of the kingdom of God to live under that. But I always had it, thankfully. And, and I, I remember last game of the year, he sat next to me and I would not go out with him. They wanted me to go out that night. I wouldn't do it. And, and we came in last game, we're sitting in the bullpen in Cleveland. He looked at me and he goes, he's about 10 years older than me. Uh, and he said, man, I'm going to tell you that I'd have more respect for you than anybody I've ever played with. I'm like, why is that? He's like, because no matter what we did to you all year, mocked you, made fun of you, just treat you like, cause I was a rookie. So we, we just hammered on you. We made, I mean, you never, you never gave in to who you were and who you are in God. He goes, I just want to tell you, I see that. And he became a believer and man, I'll tell you the craziest thing, the, when, when I revealed that I was, that I was, uh, in a divorce and, uh, I had about three friends that I told, uh, the situation to, and this man was in Israel with his wife. Cause he had just, he, he not only became a believer, he's, he's, he likes to learn. Mm. He was doing a Jesus, the Jesus walk over there yeah. And he, my buddy, one of our teammates that we were teammates with who, who knew called him and said, Hey, I felt it's in a rough go. And, and, and this guy knew it. I, but I never really told him why, but he kind of knew I was in a tough situation. He, he just thought I was just being dumb or having a hard time retiring and couldn't figure it out. And, but I didn't want, I didn't feel like I could say anything. And so one of my teammates who, who knew a lot of the details, like, hey, you need to call him. He's in a tough spot, man. And and this buddy and this buddy of mine lives in Houston. So he texts me and he's like, Hey man, I'm in Israel. I need you to get your head out of your blankety blank blank. I mean, he just wore me out. And I was like, Oh, like, 
that is not what I needed. You don't understand. I'm in a traumatic situation right now, you know? Well, he didn't know exactly. He just, so I, 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 I texted my other teammate. I'm like, hey, did you tell him? He was like, I told him to call you, but he, uh, hold on. So he, so all of a sudden I get a text 10 minutes later from the same way. He's like, scratch all of what I just said. I'm really sorry. He's like, I had no idea. He's like, I'm going to, but this is a crazy thing. He's like, I'm going to flight. I'm in Israel. And I just sat with my wife and talked to her about it. We're flying home tonight. I'm taking a red eye. And I'm I'm landing in Houston, and I will be at your house tomorrow. He flew all night, landed, got in his truck, and drove three hours, and was at my house the yeah. very next day from Israel, and sat with me for a week, and wow. didn't leave me. Like it was the craziest thing. And this is the guy that literally tried me to get me to do stuff that I would not do, act in ways that I did not want to act, and literally said, "No, I've loved you from the day I met you." He goes, and I will not leave your side. And he he was in my first court when I had to go to court for it. He was in the, he was seat, he was seated right behind me with my mom and dad, and sat with me through the whole thing and said, "I'm not leaving until this day's over." It was crazy. That's awesome. You know, what like yeah, it was awesome, awesome story yeah. of your influence, God's influence in your life, your influence in His life, and then. God being at work in his heart, bringing him to faith. Yeah. That's, that's a great story. Yeah, it, it was. And I, I've always said for the longest time, you know, I never led anybody to Christ when I played. Did not did not sit and do the prayer with him. And I was like, God, man, I, I'm like sitting out here. I kind of need something. Like I feel like, I mean, my witness, I, I literally love Jesus, love on these guys. And not one time did I sit with them and do a prayer with them. But there's probably about 12 guys that have – either had faith but just like ah, raised in the bible belt so y'all went to church but i didn't live it started living it asking me for books having great conversations and literally re-allowed their relationship with christ to flourish to guys that um uh didn't believe in god at all they became believers down the road and then had called me and said i just want to let you know eight years yeah. ago when i played with you so i've always come to that realization that I more appreciate that sure. of not saying that I got to help lead someone to Christ or, or, or pray with them on that. And obviously in your field of work, that happens a lot more because that's your calling where you get to sit there and pray with people in that situation. Mine, I always wished it, but I never got it. But I feel now that it is so fulfilling for me to be able to say, I didn't live that life to be able to put that mark on my wall necessarily. Mm -hmm. I lived that life strictly because that's who I was. And I let, again, the tandem bicycle, sure. I let God just deal with all that. And for me, it allows me, because I think in my personality, because of how we play and we get accolades, you get rings, you get contracts you get, for, for when you come through, I feel like, I appreciate that God didn't allow me to quote unquote come through to receive the actual, like I sat with him and prayed because maybe for my personality, it wouldn't be good, you know, where maybe it wouldn't, it would be more of a pride thing. Mm -hmm. And now he just, God said, I'll do it on my timing. You have to live your life. How I ask you to live it. You, you, you just be a witness because if that's what you want to be, then that's what you need to be. And I, I just have felt a lot more yeah. 
fulfillment in that. You That's know, I, I even think more often than not, it comes from more just watching people than than you know actually sitting down and doing the whole prayer specific kind of prayer. It's just watching somebody else live out their faith. Because I mean, it's an attractive thing at first. It can be like, oh, this guy's a prude. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like you, I mean, you especially if like there were other people around you on your team that maybe they were, they came from that Bible belt. They were Christian, but they were going to kind of start, you know, living however they wanted to now that they were in the big leagues. That's right. Um, you not verbally, I guess, holding them accountable, but your actions held them accountable and probably I'm guessing brought a lot of those guys back. It was, it was very convicting. But yeah. Guess. yeah. Yeah. That's, and I, I think that it, it took me a while to probably see that, you know, cause, cause you, you live this out and you resist all this stuff and you're pushing all this stuff out and you're you're inviting guys to chapel and they're like, no. And you're like, oh, man, I pour into this guy, man. Why can't... And there's so many guys that I would just... Man. And then so many guys that had called me and said, you know, if you left, I started going to chapel. And I was like... Mm-hmm. Some ways you're like, why couldn't you have done that? I'd walk you through <laughs> that. But God's like, no. Oh. I didn't want that to happen while you were there. And so for me, it was just... Man, if I could get the men and women of Cibolo Creek to understand the power of a witness from a life well lived rather than just all the words, mm. man, yeah. if they could, if they could understand that living a consistent devotion to Christ in their workplace and in their families and how they go about their personal life can be used by the spirit of God to bring so many people to Christ. It, we could start a revolution, but they don't always think in those terms. They yeah. think in the terms of, you know, yakking yeah. and the prayer and, you know, sealing the deal. And and the groundwork is laid in just the way they go about living their life. So that's, I mean, you said there might be a dozen guys that you had an influence of either drawing them closer to Christ or to Christ the first time. There's, there's the majority of Christ followers wouldn't even know the names of, five people, let alone a dozen people that God used because they're just not doing that solid work yeah. of living out their faith in those ways. So that's yeah. awesome. Thanks yeah, that makes sense. That. And I think that's where the brewery comes in for me is like, you know, I, I, I just, I mean, I'm going to do, I'm going to do men's nights there. I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to do that kind of stuff. But man, when I sit back, like I said, and I just see community, mm-hmm. man, I don't know some of the conversations that are going on there and there might be great ones and godly ones like people that are literally yeah. mentoring people. I'm just providing the opportunity to have that spot for that. And I, like you said, I think that if you, it's probably how the church was originally designed. Mm-hmm. And, and for me that, that is truly it. And I knew when I was going through, cause this, this situation with this marriage fell apart, it took two years. It was a two year divorce. It was terrible. And I lost, I, I didn't know what church I would go to church, but man, I was so, you're, you're so emotionally beat up. You almost, I just needed to sit and, and actually be poured into. So my view of church, I didn't even have one. Like I didn't know, you know, I just went to a building, but but I didn't, I lost that uh, feeling of just trying to connect with people because I didn't feel confident enough to connect with people because I was just emotionally confused. No. But now, man, I just sit back and I just, I, I, I'm getting back to that for the first time in, in a long time. It's been this year probably that I'm getting back and I'm just like, 
I like this. Like I literally like community. I I I just I I have no problem just sitting back and connecting with people because the very fact that people when I talk to them, I want them to feel the spirit of God. I don't need to tell them about it all the time. I just want them to mm-hmm. to be a part of that atmosphere. And I put it in a brewery. I think I think it's great. This is a good town to do it in. I would say you know, up north where I lived in Spokane, there's a lot of confusion on, on all that kind of stuff. So it probably wouldn't be as accepted there, but uh, it is accepted here. And I have seen pastors have beer. I've seen men's leaders have beer. I've seen my Christian, I've seen, I got buddies, I got mentors that have come in, they've had beer. Like, it's just good. And and it's just a good uh, feeling just to be able to sit and talk and, and just enjoy communion and enjoy talking with people again. And people that, are definitely not saved and I still have great conversations with yeah. them. So I'm sure God will use that brewery in the same way that he used you in major league baseball. Just, well, I, you'll trust great. that. I know that he is. Cause I know a few of the Tom Patterson from here, him, him uh-huh. and my dad. And I think a couple other guys, they always meet up there where they didn't really have like a place to yeah. go to. Yeah. And so it's a good feeling. Uh, yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I don't know what kind of time we're on. But it doesn't really matter. But there's something I want to explore with you. You're raising three boys. Yeah. And from where I sit, I get to see some of it, some of what you share on uh, social media and just some other um, avenues that I have. I think you're doing an outstanding job of having an influence, being very intentional about raising these boys. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you're learning there. So I'm learning a few things. Um, I'm learning, uh, one of the things I've learned being a single dad uh, is, man, giving, having permission to speak to your sons is super important. And I was raised in the military, and my dad knows this. I, I'm not saying he my dad hasn't heard before, but you know, I didn't have, he didn't ever ask permission to talk with me. He just said, this is how it is, deal with it, or he'd scold you, or he'd tell me to go to my room, ground me, and then come in, charge in, and, and say what he had to say and leave, and, and he was dad. And I came, as I started uh, talking with different people, one question was posed to me, and they said, did you ever receive anything from your parents when they did that? I said, no. I was just mad at them. They're like, yeah. So, but if they would have came in and said, hey, you you didn't act appropriate, but do I have permission to sit and talk with you so we can process through how we saw it versus how you saw it? I said, well, I would have probably had a little different conversation and Mm -hmm. I probably would have thought differently. And they're like, permission is an important thing. And so many adults and so many parents think they're my kid. I don't need to give, get permission at all. What I found out that, that they are your kid. You do have the authority in the home, but they have things called hearts and minds and souls and they have emotions and when they choose not to let you in, you can talk to your blue in the face and then you're going to get, why don't you ever listen? And that's when the concept was shared with me. It's because they're not listening because you not, did not get permission to speak. Oh, and so what I have done, and it's been awesome, is one, I don't raise my voice in my home. Right. And if I do, actually, I can't say I don't. I do. When I do, it is at a time where the boys are like, Ugh. We ran too many top stop signs, but I don't immediately raise my voice. And some people just yell, like they're just going to yell right away because I'm going to start authority. I don't do that. Uh, I feel I see my son, especially my oldest son, 
he'll frazzle. You'll see it in his, and at that moment that he frazzles, he stops hearing. He will not listen. And I've seen, uh, and I see different things in my boys that I can tell when they've gotten to that point of they're like, they're so, their mind's spinning so fast, they can't, they can't hear you. Uh, so what I've learned is ask permission. Like, hey, we're going to stop now. And they can, and I said, you guys can argue all you want. I'm not going to argue with any further. And you keep going. I'm going to remove you from the situation, and I'm just going to put you in your room. I'm not going to say go to your room and think about it. I'm not going to ground you. I'm going to say I need you to go to your room because we need to separate right now, and I need to actually go to my place, and you need to go to your place, and then we'll come back together when everything's calmed down. And for my boys, it's been pretty good to now I have realized they do not um, when they, they're boys, they're going to be bickering and fighting, but I can say one thing to them now. And it's not an intimidation of, Oh, dad said, stop. It's, I need you to stop. And I, I see that they, they now respect me because they love me. They don't respect me because they're afraid of me. And I really mm. appreciate that. And so I've been able to kind of run that course. Now, like I said, I don't want drama in the home. And I've told the boys that, and I said, I know you're going to have normal kid drama. But what I don't want is the raised voices and the yelling because I don't I don't like that. Uh, I've had too much of that. And all I want is conversation. We don't have to see it eye to eye. And I'm going to give you a voice to speak. I'm dad, and I pay the bills, so I'm going to actually have the end all. But I'm going to let you give your opinion. Mm-hmm. Not that your opinion is always going to influence me. And my youngest said it to me one time, and he taught me a lot. He's a very he's he's an old soul. He's going to be ten, uh, but he said, "Dad, uh, this is a couple years ago when I was still learning this process." And I asked him, "I do ask me anything, nights. You can ask me anything you want. There's no, you're not going to get in trouble." And I remember he said, "Dad, I don't, I don't really have anything to ask you. I have something to tell you." And I said, "Game on." He said, you know, sometimes I know I'm not right. I said, okay, but I still want to be heard. Mm. And, man, it leveled me. Like, le- like, I was like, that's what I'm learning. In my, I have my own therapy that I go through, and I'm like, I'm learning that same thing. It's not necessary. I just need to be validated. I need to be heard. I don't care if I'm wrong, but let me feel like I'm being heard. And I said, man, that is impressive. And he was eight when he said that to wow. me. He wasn't, yeah, he's going to be awesome, 10. Bro. So I've, I've really tried to do that. And I'll ask him, are you feeling heard? And he'll be like, yeah. He's tearing up. He's, you know, feeling frustrated. And I'll be like, but are you feeling heard? He's like, yeah, I feel heard. I'm just, I'm just sad or I'm frustrated or I'm, it doesn't seem right. I'm like, okay, but are you being heard? And I, I just, I, I check in and, and that's really, really helped me. Uh, to make my boys uh, feel heard or to allow them to feel heard. And then we process through it through conversation, which I call the hear process. And we do that a lot. We have team meetings. And and for me, raising them that way um, is so much better. And it's not soft. I'm not going soft on them. They're not soft boys. I have no problem raising boys that that have that tough mentality. I want to raise boys that understand how Jesus was one. He was tough, but he was also compassionate. He was also empathetic, and he also connected with people emotionally, physically. Didn't matter. I mean, the guys slept on boats in storms and head 
on rocks and, you know, got beat and whipped and he took it all. He's tough. But he's also, gee, he wept. Like he connected with when he saw Martha and Mary. And, and, and so I'm wanting to raise those men. Yeah. And and I feel like that that's, man, it's hard. I, I get, I to be honest with you, I get um, sometimes emotionally tired in the sense of like, I, I tend to feel bad from time to time because I'll be like, oh, man, I just don't have the energy right now to go do something with them. But I like to do stuff with them. But I'm like, I, I, I can't. And, and being a single parent is very, very difficult because I, I can't be in three places at once and I can't always meet all three of them where they're at emotionally at the same time. I don't have the emotional capacity to do that. Yep. So when I'm focusing on my 15-year-old and my 10-year-old's freaking out, sometimes it's hard for me to like connect down there when I'm trying to connect up here. So I really ask God for a lot of grace uh, and patience and, and, and the ability to, to, to function in that way. I've got a lot of good friends that have surrounded me and they've, they've helped out. Uh, so that's been very, very good. I met a wonderful woman uh, named Candace who connects with the boys very, very well. Uh, and so they like her. So she has, that's been a real blessing. God's really yeah. put her in my life to help me uh, with some of that because she connects with, with, uh, with all these boys on different levels, but she does connect with them. So I'm kind of I get I get a break every now and then if I'm not seeing it correctly, because mm-hmm. I won't see everything correctly. Uh, and so I've just learned, in the end, permission is huge, uh, and 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 allowing them to feel heard is also big. And if I can keep those two concepts at my at my forefront when I when I'm parenting, uh, I, I it does go a long way. Yeah, and I love that. I- I'm getting married in November, and um, we've been talking about how we were both raised in different like parenting styles that we experienced. And my fiance says that she was she was just kind of told no a lot. She's like, no, you're not allowed to do that. But there was never any explanation given. It reminded me whenever you said, well, whenever your dad got loud and just shouted at you, did you ever receive anything from that? And you said, no, obviously not. Um, and it's like you know you don't owe your kids an explanation of why they That's can't right. do this or what the rules are. You don't owe that to them. But it might be really helpful if you told them. It's yep. like, if not, they're already in a rebellious stage. They're just going to rebel against you just to rebel against you. That's right. And you're not teaching them anything either. Yeah, yeah you know, I, th- I learned that even with the, the with, with alcohol stuff. Uh, you, you, know, you, you lock up alcohol, and immediately the kids are going to be like, yep. how do I get past the lock? Well, if it's locked, that means I got to try to do this, <laughs> <Yep>. you know? <laughs> yeah. If you don't lock it... Uh, not, not not saying that's necessarily safe all the time, but there's no hiddenness here, guys. Like I don't I don't have a beer after you go to bed. Right. I have a beer while you're up. I'm not hiding anything here. And so I, I remember I have this big wine cellar at my house and some wine and, and uh, some scotch. I like I like bourbons and and my my oldest is like, what happened to not locking it? And I'm like. Yeah, but now you're in your stupid stage. So now you know I don't have a problem with it. I have a problem with you doing it, but there's no secret. It's not a sin. It's I don't want you being dumb. So that's what I'm into. He's like, Dad, I've never even tried yet. Like, I'm not dumb, son. Like, and honestly, like, I have no problem telling you that. Like, I don't have any, there's nothing in me that says that there's not going to be something back of your head. Find a way to try it. There, there, I, I'm, I'm not. You're, there's a discipline. There's a consequence if it happens, but I'm not so far 
detached from the situation that's not going to go through your head or that you won't try it. So I'm just trying to be responsible with the situation. Uh, But I just, I think when you say, because I said so, you're going to get challenged. You're going to get challenged. Plus what you're doing is you're not equipping your child. I agree. So many parents manage the moment instead of the lifetime. And so they, they say no, or you go to your room, but they don't put any framework to the situations so the kid's not learning he's just reacting and Mm -hmm. feeling so you're not really equipping him to know how to manage himself or his emotions or the situation going forward and when you when you make a whole lifetime of parenting like that where you manage the moment then that's where the the distance grows between parents and and child and they end up resenting each other, hating each other, unable to communicate or connect with each other yeah. because there's just so many wounds and the wounds were never healed in a way that was very constructive. So uh, good for you. I, I love that. Some of the lessons that, that you learned that, that bit about permission. Mm. Um, yes, they're your child and you're the authority or the one who's responsible, but they're still a human being. Yeah. We're raising these little human beings. And so um, getting the permission to be able to speak into that moment, uh, it can be a lot more constructive than destructive. Good yeah. for you. And I'm not asking permission to speak. I'm dad. I'm asking permission to speak to your soul because you don't take it. Yeah. If I can't get to your heart, you can hear it all day. It doesn't matter. But it's right. the same thing all the way around. I use that even in my other relationships. I just learned it a lot with my kids because people forget to do that with kids because they think they're kids. And I say they're kids with impressionable hearts and minds. So that's actually really important time to teach the, the concept of permission because do unto others as you want done unto you. Well, if, you're, if you ask that your kids ask permission to speak to you, well, then I got to ask permission to speak to you. And it's not the authority side. It's I just need permission to be able to to know that I'm going to be heard and I'm not just yeah. speaking to a yeah. brick wall. And marriage, same thing. You're sure. getting married. One thing that I, if I had to start, and I was young, I was 20 when I got married, so I didn't even understand the concept of it. And it was probably a lot of the dysfunction in my first marriage. But if even starting over, thinking about it if if i had to ever give advice to a young couple uh man permission is like super big so if you're frustrated with your bride and you just going up to her and firing off on her you will not be hurt you will be reacted to there'll be a big old fight but if you could say hey maybe this isn't a good time but you have affected me by what's taken place uh is there a good time where we can just talk about it? I just want permission to talk with you. Yeah. It will go way further and there's not defenses. And, and I, I've even done it with, with, with my girlfriend now, because I'd like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to be a spouse again. So I, I, I want her to be my spouse. We're not married yet, but I'd like to. And I, so I'm trying to work through it. And even now it's like, Hey, I, I, I need, I need to be able to talk to you. Here's how you affected me. This is not for deep for you to get defensive. You probably didn't even know you did it. I just want to tell you why it affected me. So yeah. is there a good time where we can sit and talk about that where cuz some if you're working or distracted, you're not going to yeah, you're not going to get permission. I just want 
you have permission. And it is amazing. It, it blows me away the conversations that we're able to have simply because I just asked permission. Like, yeah. It doesn't it, force those walls to automatically go up too. That's right. And if she says, no, you don't have permission, good thing I asked. Because if I would have <laughs> just said it, we would have had an issue. So yeah. then you're like, okay, that's okay. Let me know when there is time. Or, or, and it's vice versa. You might be that say the same thing. Like I, I've been where I've been frustrated and I don't, I don't want to talk right now. Like, give me like 40 minutes. If I'm hungry. Yeah. yeah. Not now. There you go. Like, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, Look at that. Good. Free marriage advice from three time world. Yeah. One of the things that white and I talk a lot about is culture and society and things that we're seeing and hearing that's happening in our landscape because we're interested in trying to help people as Christians be able to navigate, you know, the moral and ethical dilemmas of, of our world. And one of the things that he and I agree on is that men, male is under attack and there's so much toxicity about that topic and so much confusion and changing paradigms and things being lost and misconstrued that, you know, I just have the biggest admiration for dads who are engaging with their boys and raising sons who will become wonderful men. And I love that balance. They're going to be tough, yep. but they're going to have compassion and empathy because that is a strength. That's to right. be compassionate, to be empathetic is a strength. It's not a weakness. And we see that in Christ because you're right. He, he was one tough guy. And yet he modeled a humility about who he was. He modeled a, a love and tenderness toward people in need. And, and so that's not a loss of masculinity. That's raising masculinity yeah. up to this beautiful uh, expression that it was. So good stuff. We could probably sit here all day. Yeah, yeah right. This so, is good. You got any more questions good. you want to share, Wyatt? No, no. Um, Unless you just had anything that you wanted to say about just anything else that you're doing right now that you're involved in that you want to let folks know about? No, man, I think that's it. I, I think uh, we talked about my heart is just straight community. It's it's getting out there and just pouring back into people and uh, keeping families together. I mean, my brewery is family friendly for a reason. Uh, people say, hey, I've had people write in, there's too many kids around. Well, there's another brewery down the street maybe, but <laughs> I don't apologize for it because my kids are here. So yeah. I got to provide opportunities for kids to be here because there's plenty of games out back and stuff like that for kids. And, and so parents can sit and talk to their parents, but their, their kids can play right there. Right. Uh, I did it for a reason. We're dog friendly for the same reason. I have dogs. I, I, I like my dogs there. And, and I, I, that's community for me. Like, mm -hmm. and so everything about community, we do a 5k run on Mondays. Why? It's community. There's yeah. 70 people that show up to run or walk, and they're talking and hanging out, or they're competing with the time, but then they all go back to the brewery, and they're all sweating their butt off in this heat, and they talk. Like, yeah. community, trivia night, community. Like, it's all about connecting and people and, um, and, and just relating. And so, to me, that's Jesus. I, I truly believe that. Um, I truly believe that's how he wants it. I think how he sees it. And community like that allows people to express their differences and their similarities. And you simply are expressing those. It doesn't mean I hate you. That means I just don't agree with you. Or maybe I need to have a change of, uh, of opinion. And simply what Jesus did when he hung out with people, he just shared truth. And, and he didn't 
hammer people and, and he just kind of sat and hung with them. And, and I, I feel like that's the safest environment to be you is in, in environments like that yeah. uh, where you can just be and not, no, no, not worry about it. Yeah. It's amazing what creating a space centered around food and beer will produce. Right? <laughs> yeah. And it's that's like, what I learned about breweries. Yeah. Yeah. I've it, always said like, if we want to, you know, get more people to grow in communities, like all you just need is dinner and Jesus, honestly. Like that's what you're going to do anyways. So just do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's the potluck. Yes, yeah. The, the potluck. potluck. Yeah. Yeah. There's got a lot of people on staff who are going to be very upset with you. You just encourage the potluck. <laughs> but <laughs> the three of us pick up the mantle of restoring the potluck yeah. as the great center of the uh, church. Potluck. Well, I appreciate that heart, Jeremy, because that's my heart. That's my dream for Cibolo is really about the connections and the community. And, you know, we do services and people sit and stare at the back of each other's head for an hour, but that's not my favorite expression of our church. It's the relationships and the friendships have been born. Yeah. And so I love that. And I love that you're getting to do it in your unique expression, because I know that our community will be richer the more people get connected and trusting of one another especially after two years of a pandemic that spoiled that so i wish you all the best i can't wait to come out there and and enjoy it myself sometime i I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet but uh you're doing a good work thank you appreciate you appreciate Mm -hmm. the witness Mm -hmm. that you have and uh thanks for joining us here on our our podcast no thanks for having me it's great appreciate it guys appreciate it I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget that new episodes are released every Wednesday. If you'd like to listen to our Sunday morning messages, you can find those by searching Cibolo Creek Messages. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about Cibolo Creek Community Church, you can find us at CiboloCreek.com. Thanks for listening.